Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning, as Elizabeth just said, is World Communion Sunday. That great manifestation of the ecumenical movement of the 20th century. For those of you who might not be familiar with the word ecumenical, it refers to the worldwide church, or when churches get together, the unity church, that, that, that unity church movement, bringing churches together, the ecumenical movement. And indeed, if you look on the logo of the UCC, you will see a line of scripture written there. And that line of scripture comes from the text that we heard this morning. This is the motto of the UCC. And it's from John chapter 17, verse 21. That they may all be one. Because the United Church of Christ itself, our denomination, is the manifestation, is the outgrowth of this 20th century ecumenical movement. The UCC brought together the Evangelical and Reformed Churches and the Congregational Christian Churches to form the United Church of Christ in 1957. So I have two questions for you, though. Given all the divisions that exist in Christianity, how on earth did we get to a point where different denominations of different ethnic backgrounds with different polity structures would actually voluntarily want to come together? And if that happened in 1957, what on earth has happened since then such that we don't seem to really care that much about the ecumenical movement? I mean, we celebrate World Communion Sunday today. It got started in 1933 at the flagship Presbyterian church in Pittsburgh, Shadyside Presbyterian. And, with just, and within just a few short years, it was celebrated in churches throughout the United States and then eventually throughout the world. But I would bet if a similar thing happened today, it wouldn't catch on nearly so fast. And when you think about it, the early Congregationalists in the 17th century did not get along with other Christians to such a degree that they even hanged Quakers on Boston Common for not listening to them when they said, get the heck out. How can a denomination go from that to then joining with other Christians? Hmm. The story really begins in the lee of a haystack in 1806 in Williamstown, Massachusetts. For it was there that a group of Williams College students got together and pledged their lives to foreign missions. And just four years later, they founded the very first foreign missionary organization in the United States, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. And in the decades that followed, every denomination founded their own foreign missionary organization. And these organizations not only spread uh, the word, the gospel, to all different countries in the world, but they were supported by churches. So you have to understand the foreign missionary movement uh, imbued the very fabric, or got into the very fabric of all the local congregations. Every congregation had a sleeper cell of those who would advocate for foreign missions. And that's how they were able to raise huge amounts of money to support foreign missions. 
There was no greater calling in the 19th century Protestant churches than to go overseas and try and convert people to being Christians. This was a very big deal. For the American board in the 1850s, they were raising $350,000 a year from voluntary donations. Okay, to put that in perspective, that's something like, that was something like two-thirds the size of the entire federal budget at the time. They raised, and that was just the foreign mission wing of the congregational churches. This was a big deal. Now, there's one thing about foreign missions. You could argue about various things domestically, but once you got overseas and were trying to convert people, you found out very quickly that Christians were working hand in hand. And in fact, the Americans didn't want to compete with one another for converts overseas, so they actually eventually divvied up various parts of the globe that different foreign missionary organizations were given more or less sphere of influence over. Which is why you find certain countries with very prominent Protestant churches, but not other Protestant churches. So this foreign missionary movement, not only did it bring churches together overseas, but it also started to bring people together at home. You had the student Christian movement, for instance, that became a worldwide student Christian movement. Part of it was to train people to be future missionaries. The very first worldwide gathering of Christians happened in 1910 in Edinburgh in order to try, these are Protestant Christians, by the way, I want to make that clear. <laughs> happened in Edinburgh in 1910 in order to talk about world missions. So this foreign missionary impulse was a great unifying impulse for Protestant Christians in the United States and a very big deal in the 19th century. But just as foreign missions played a big role, so did domestic missions, so-called home missions. You see, in the early 19th century, there was the whole West to be settled. And every denomination had home missionary organizations to help stake their claim in this new territory. And the denominations bitterly competed with one another to found churches in various towns. But by the time the frontier was closed, at the end of the 19th century, you could go to every community and find your local congregational church or Presbyterian church, your local Episcopal church, your local Methodist church, probably several, your local Baptist church, probably several, um, all throughout the country. There became less of a need to compete against one another because these churches already existed and were well established in these communities. And at the same time, you saw the rise of industrialization that brought with it all sorts of new social ills. Income inequality, uh, unsanitary conditions in a lot of slums of the United States, working condition issues in different factories, the rise of the labor movement. These things called on Christians to step up and get involved in social ills, and therefore the term missions and home missions began to take on a new definition. Missions was no longer about necessarily planting new churches, but about turning the United States into the kingdom of God. And that was something that brought different Christian churches together. Because even though they might disagree on certain aspects of theology, they all wanted to try and improve the lot of those who were less fortunate. That's what Jesus called on us to do. The social gospel movement had representatives from many different denominations involved. What was the largest Christian organization in the late 19th century, domestically? The Women's Christian Temperance Union to fight for the uh, to fight for prohibition. And again, that was led by uh, women in all different Protestant denominations. That brought people together. During the progressive movement in the early 20th century, it was led by Protestant Christians who wanted to make the United States a better place. I love the story in 1912 at the, at the convention for the Progressive Party, after Theodore Roosevelt finished his convention speech, the entire 12,000 group there spontaneously broke into singing Onward Christian Soldiers. Every verse of them. 
They all knew all verses by heart. This gives you the sense of how deeply imbued the progressive movement was with this Protestant Christian notion of transforming the United States into a better place. And it spanned different denominations. And indeed, a final factor that led to these churches coming together were changes in theology. So while today we might argue about gay marriage or ordination of gays and lesbians, that's just our own particular historical moment. If you go back to the early 19th century, the main issues were, does predestination or free will exist? Yes, no, big debates there. What does it mean to be born again, or what does a conversion moment mean? That was a big source of argument in the early 19th century. What does salvation look like? But as the 19th century carried on, and you had the rise of liberal theology, again led by the Congregationalist Horace Bushnell, people started to see language, theological language, in more symbolic terms. Doctrine became less significant. Some of the issues that were important in the early 19th century were no longer important by the end of the 19th century, such that you could walk into different congregations in the early 20th century. You could go to a Methodist church, you could go to a Congregational church, a Presbyterian church, an Episcopal church, and the message wouldn't be all that different. Such that by the 1920s, you could see the UCC theologian H. Richard Niebuhr writing the book, The Social Sources of Denominationalism, in which he argued that what divided Christians were about history, not about the present-day the theological differences. More than that, he said, our, our denominational differences reflect differences in ethnicity and class more than theology. And as a result, they're a manifestation of human sin and those divisions should be overcome if we want to live into Jesus' call that we may all be one. Whew, exciting time to live in in the early 20th century. And certain denominations took this and ran with it. The German uh, Evangelical Synod Church and the German Reformed Church decided to merge in 1934. The Congregational Churches merged with the Christian Churches in 1931 to form the Congregational Christian Churches. And even though other denominations talked about merger, it was those two denominations that actually made it happen over a long period of time, over a lot of discussions, over legal battles, they brought together the United Church of Christ in 1957. That's a great monument to this movement. But it didn't end there, oh no. In 1960, in December of 1960, the Bishop of Grace Cathedral, uh, the Bishop of Northern California, Episcopal Bishop, James Pike, invited the moderator of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Churches to speak in Grace Cathedral, and he gave this great sermon about the creation of a Protestant super church. And within a couple years, they had formed the Consultation on Church Union, that included churches, including, that included the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church, the United Church of Christ, the churches that became the United Methodist Church, the Disciples of Christ, uh, also traditionally African-American churches like the AME Church and the AME Zion Church. They all got together to talk about how to merge. <sighs> so why didn't it happen? What sucked the air out of it? Well, it turns out when you try and bring churches together, it's a lot harder in practice than theory. Things like, do you have a bishop or not? People actually argue over those types of things. Should you have a presbytery or not? 
how much control over finances should local churches have or not? What happens to the denominational bureaucracies? What happens to these great foreign and home missionary organizations when you merge together? These types of discussions, which are easy to gloss over when you talk about what brings us together, when you start actually getting to the nitty gritty of it, become big issues. The consultation on church union was around for 35 years before it finally stopped its work. It produced a number of great papers and not one church merger. And also in the 1960s, when all this effort's being spent on bringing churches together, there are other Christians that are looking around and saying, hey, if we want to follow Jesus, shouldn't we be involved in the civil rights movement, not talking about church mergers? Shouldn't we want to address the environmental crisis? Shouldn't we want to speak out about the Vietnam War? All of a sudden, when you looked at the issues that were going on at the time, things like church mergers and the ecumenical movement seemed like a footnote at least when you think about what Jesus was calling people to do. And then there's the realization that our differences actually can make us stronger. Think about it. If you bring all the churches together, then all of a sudden there has to be more agreement about doctrinal issues. How much longer would it have taken to have women get ordained in many denominations if all these denominations were one? Or about the ordination of gays and lesbians. In 1972, the United Church of Christ ordained the first openly gay person in the Christian church. 1972, if they were all one church, would that have ever happened? No. The UCC in 1985 called on all of its churches to be open and affirming to gays and lesbians. If that was a one big church, would that have happened in 1985? Or would gay marriage have been affirmed in 2005? No. There are values to having diversity of churches. And so we find ourselves in the interesting ecumenical place that we are today. Now, our theme for this fall, both in sermons and also in our stewardship campaign, is imagine more. And so as I was surveying this history, I was trying to think to myself, yeah, but, but this is still at the core of our identity, this ecumenical thing. How can we imagine more in terms of ecumenism? Let's say we were to actually take that phrase seriously, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. You hear it all the time, especially in the old congregational church. Let's say you take that seriously. Okay, if Jesus is the head of the church, then we clearly need to listen to Jesus and we should have more cooperation. We might disagree on a lot of stuff, but hopefully we can agree. Let's go back to the New Testament and argue it out. And indeed, when we talk with other Christians, we can learn a lot. Other denominations can learn from the UCC's Witness on Social Justice. Other denominations can learn from the UCC's uh, engagement with contemporary theological trends. But you know, those Methodists, they're good about that warmed heart, and sometimes we get too stuck in our head and don't have enough heart. Maybe we can learn something from those Methodists. The Baptists are really good about calling people the commitment to God every Sunday. <laughs> you hear that, the music starts playing, some people start walking down the aisle, you're like, yeah. Am I committed to God as much as I should be? Maybe we can learn something from that. The Episcopalians have beautiful liturgy, very historical. Is there something that we can learn from their great appreciation of liturgy here in the UCC? And while I, I wish the evangelicals would sit down and listen to some of our discussions about theology and the life of the mind, they could also come back and say, yeah, but how often do you read your Bibles? How much does your faith form you on a daily basis? 
Is there something that we can learn from them as well as they can learn from us? I love how in our confirmation class, we had our confirmands visit different places of worship to see how other Christians did things. I don't think that's something to fear, but something to celebrate. You can learn a lot by visiting another place of worship. Unfortunately, I work on Sunday morning. Otherwise, I'd love to go visit more churches. But there's also that great calling of what we can do together. When you ask people in this congregation what First Congregational Church is about, everyone seems to say, we want to transform Houston. We want to make Houston a better place. But I got news for you. With just 300 people, we're not going to change a 4 million person city on our own. But if we get together with other people, if we work together with other Christians and other faith groups, what can happen? For the last nine months, I've been working to bring together faith leaders in Houston into what's going to be called, hopefully, the Faith Leaders Coalition. Arguing out bylaws in this group has been a little bit difficult, but, and also working with clergy is like herding cats. <laughs> but so far, we have over 40 clergy people from uh, a reformed, Judaism, reformed Jewish background, conservative Jewish background, from the Lutheran Church, Episcopal Church, Methodist Church, Disciples of Christ, Baptist, um, and another bunch of others there too, all getting together and we're trying to bind ourselves together into an organization for political advocacy in Houston on behalf of those who are most disadvantaged, on behalf of turning this community into the kingdom of God. Imagine what we could actually do when we work together. Think about what this community would look like if we had a greater sense of unity among the different churches. Imagine if we actually bound together with the things that we agree on rather than arguing about the things that we disagree on. We could do so much for this community. I invite you to think on this World Communion Sunday to imagine a bit more, to think a bit more about what the ecumenical vision can mean for Houston. We have a lot to learn and we have a lot to teach and we have a lot of work to get done. What would it mean if we all took those words of Jesus a bit more seriously that we may all be one? Certainly something to think about on this morning as much as any other. Table and make us one at the table, he said. 
sets the tone, teaching people to live and bless, love and word and deed express. Jesus lives again, earth can breathe again, pass the word around, loaves abound. Jesus lives again, earth can breathe again, pass the word around, loaves abound. Jesus calls us in, sends us out, bearing fruit in a world of doubt, gives us love to tell, bread to share. Please be seated. I'd like to invite us now all into a time of silent reflection. It's at this point where I'd like us all to consider those moments in this past week where we have felt most separated from God, most separated from other people, or most separated from our truest selves. Take a moment to name those specific times in your head. And now consider those times when you felt closest to God, closest to your neighbor, and most in touch with your inner self. <laughs> 